Hi, welcome to the Fast Life with Diabetes podcast. My name is Lucy Fisher. On this podcast, we'll discuss everything related to intermittent fasting and type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We'll share tips and tricks, and we'll reveal some of the challenges that we've all faced as we go through this journey. We'll also have some fascinating guests that will share their stories. Thanks so much for joining. It's going to be a great show. Also, before we get started, I just want to remind you that I am not a doctor. Before beginning an intermittent fasting protocol or making changes to your medication, I highly recommend that you speak to your doctor. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining today. Today we have on a very special guest. Her name is Nairi Masissian. Nairi has type 1 diabetes. She's had diabetes for 45 years and we talk about a lot of different topics, principally fasting and a ketogenic or low-carb diet. Nairi is somebody that is on the forefront of fasting with type 1 diabetes and to that end she has created a Facebook group called Keto and Fasting with Type 1 Diabetes. I definitely recommend that you check out that group. She has a website which can be found at lowcarbandfasting.com and there you can see her blog where she goes over her extended fasts that she's done and you can find out about her coaching services. And lastly, she has a YouTube channel where she interviews thought leaders on issues such as diabetes, fasting, and diet. Her interviews are really fascinating and I definitely recommend that you check out Nayeri in all of the places that she can be found. In this particular episode, we talk about her experiences with extended fasting, how she manages her diabetes today. We also talk about women's issues such as perimenopause and menopause. We cover a lot of really different wide-ranging topics and I found her to be an extremely informative guest and I know I enjoyed recording this episode with Nayeri and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Hi Nayeri, I'm so happy to see you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Lucy. Thank you. I found you through Facebook and you have a really wonderful Facebook group and on that group you you also have links to a bunch of other things that you do including your website, your YouTube channel, and your coaching, you have a lot of different things going on and I wanna get into all of that. But I just wanna tell you that I'm super excited to speak to you and it's really nice to be able to speak to another type one that is really taking a strong interest in fasting and giving back to the community. So, so thank you for that. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe you can just give us a little bit of background about yourself, your diabetes and how you treat your diabetes now. Right. Um, okay, so um, obviously I'm Nairi, Nairi Mississian. I was diagnosed 45 years ago. Um, I've always said this on podcasts. I don't remember life before diagnosis. So I don't remember, you know, days when I used to not carb count. Uh, but I do remember the day I was diagnosed. And I think I spent definitely spent one night at the hospital and I found out the next morning that I wasn't allowed no no not that I wasn't allowed but that I had to uh, watch pastries and um, and pasta and bread that I had to limit those that's 
that's the only thing I understood I took from the hospital with me when we came back home obviously it was a battle I was five so I was too young to understand um, no one explained to me not because my mom or grandma and I lived with them with an extended family had uh, had uh, you know no kindness not at all quite the contrary I mean they were just that lost I was the only one who was diagnosed, the only child that they ever came across who was diagnosed um, as type one. And they knew how important the diet was to me because diet was important in those days. I'm going back to the 70s. They never told us eat what you want and cover it with insulin. But this was, of course, before rapid in acting insulin came about. And so um, insulin was not rapid acting. It wasn't fast acting. It would peak at like this uh, sixth hour or seventh hour. And so... Um, so we had to watch our carbohydrates. Um, uh, the, the injections, daily injections were a battle for me. I resisted until I uh, couldn't resist anymore. I came to terms with it. But uh, this was my sort of story of diagnosis. I'm always fascinated by how uh, how important the diet, carbohydrate control was in those days. And then everything just flipped and changed with the with the onset of the rapid acting insulins and we were then told oh this insulin is like it works like uh like real uh, endogenous insulin so um you can just eat what you want and um and just inject and cover it with rapid acting insulin so eat all the carbohydrates you want but of course it doesn't work no one ever really discussed or even I sometimes think, did I ever actually sit down and think that insulin would work at the same rate or at the same pace as, as your digestion, where you're actually digesting your food and metabolizing it or converting it into glucose? How do you match the two? Um, if you look at any rapid rapid uh, or fast-acting insulin, right, online, you look at when they start peaking, it gives you something vague like, oh, anywhere between 20 minutes to two hours. <laughs> so how do you know when it's actually going to start peaking in you and match that with another variable, which is, you know, how quickly you're going to turn your food into glucose, then, you know, you're just playing with fire. It's, 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 you're constantly going to chase your blood sugars, they're going to go up, and then they're going to crash, and then they're going to <laughs> go further up again, because you're going to eat every time your blood sugars crash, you eat again, and then they go back up. So, um, so I kind of lived like that, uh, I have to say since probably the late 90s when my insulin switched to rapid or fast acting insulin um then I was told yeah eat anything you want and in fact they would uh teach us about carbohydrate counting so we would accurately count the carbohydrates uh, in our food so that we would have to take the right amount of insulin. But of course, they didn't tell us about, as I said, about the, you know, matching the peak of the two. So of the insulin uh, uh, effectiveness and the blood sugar rise. So you can't match the two. So it's a diet I follow now. It's a low carbohydrate diet. Um, uh, in fact, I'm pretty strict, but, you know, low carbohydrate diet works with uh 
most type ones, not everyone needs to be super, super low or, uh, you know, or even a carniv carnivore. I'm very close to carnivore. I'm an alternate between um, carnivore one day, the next day I introduce some vegetables, the third day I don't include vegetables just because this diet works for me personally. It's... Um, it's good for my blood sugars, but it's also, I find it optimal as far as, um, you know, my joint pains are concerned and uh, my resistance training. So I find that meat or animal product heavy diet works best for me. So, but, you know, for most type ones, uh, lowering the carbohydrates will mean lowering your insulin levels. And when you're lowering your insulin levels, you're not going to have sharp, uh, sharp drops in in your blood sugar. Um, and, and of course, lowering carbohydrates means that you're not going to have sharp rises in your blood sugar levels either. And so, uh, you know, you uh, so most of the time, my blood sugars, apart from, you know, there are the odd days, and we'll get into that uh, in a minute, Lucy, but, uh, but for the most part, my blood sugars are in a tight range. They go up and down, they go up, and when they go up and down, they're literally just going up and down within a range of, I would say, I don't know, 3.6 um, millimoles over a liter to, um, to maybe seven at most or six. Uh, so, uh, you know, between anything between 65 to uh, 120. So that's a relatively tight range. So we're not really looking at, you know, what sharp rises and sharp, sharp, sharp drops. So I hope that gives you a background of where I started and what I do now. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I I actually I try to keep to the same range too now, sixty five to one twenty. You know, obviously mm -hmm. that's aspirational on certain days. <laughs> um, what are you using a pump or are you doing MDI? What what's your protocol? I'm a pump user. I've been using a pump now for fifteen years, uh, and uh, for the past I would say for the past seven years, um, I've been using the CGM too. So. I'm, in fact, I find myself really privileged to have those tools because they help with my control. Um, that's not to say that you can't have good control without a CGM because the people that I associate with prove, would prove me wrong. I, I interact with some very inspirational type 1 diabetics actually from around the world who have no access. They can't even afford those tools. They don't have access to them. They can't, they can't even afford insulin, their monthly insulin needs. So they can't even meet those. So, uh, and they're managing just fine. They're managing just fine. So these are the people I actually, oh, uh, let's get into that later. But uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about helping people who perhaps don't have the luxuries of choice or options that we in the Western world uh, seem to have. Oh, um, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes I think, you know, in the low carbohydrate space or even in type one diabetes space, we're just too critical uh, and judgmental in, 
instead of giving each other support, we judge each other. I mean, uh, join a carnivore group, for example, on Facebook and say that, oh, you added salt and pepper to your oh, salt and dried herbs to your steak and go, well, you're not carnivore. So, oh, you added uh, paprika to your steak, you flavored it. Well, that's plant food, so you're not carnivore. I mean, or you go to a type one group and they tell you, oh, you're not using our insulin for, um, and that's in my case, for example. I mean, I was told in a very major type one group that I actually love. And I I, I love the guys in that group. I love, I'm, I mean, they inspire me. I, I They motivate me. I love everything they stand for and everything that they're doing. But they just didn't understand that I don't have our insulin. Yes, I've read Bernstein's book. In fact, Bernstein's book lies in my bedside. So I use um, Richard Bernstein's obviously diabetes solution. Uh, if you're type one, you haven't read that book, I recommend that you read the book. Um, he recommends, um, for example, intermediate acting insulin, not fast and not the very slow ones that people use as background insulin. So uh, for, to cover protein, protein meals, because protein will uh, raise your blood sugar levels, but the rise will be um, kind of a small bump and it could take for anywhere between four to four to eight hours. So our insulin, intermediate acting insulin or regular insulin, will work perfectly with protein. And because my meals are protein heavy now, ideally, or in the ideal world, for example, I should be using our insulin. I can't get it in the United Kingdom. I can't get a prescription for it. My diabetes consultant or endo says no to it. So I'm gonna have to go and see him and fight my case. Um, um, but, but it's not so easy for some people around the world to access the foods that we in the West have access to, and I, I mean, Britain is in the West, but but again, I mean, something as basic as, uh, you know, regular insulin, um, they won't prescribe it. So um, what I really do online is I want to support everyone without the judgment. I want to tell everyone, look, you know, when you've bought your insulin for your your teenage diabetic son or daughter and these are real stories i'm sharing with you how much money do you have left because that money is going to be spent on food this person can't afford meat what do i tell them to eat you know just tell them not to eat the beans and lentils for protein they are going to have to rely on plant proteins because they can't access the meat except on a sunday once a month or twice a month um just tell them what I don't even charge people. <laughs> I don't charge type one diabetics for my services or for my consultations. I just feel like um, this this mom who's right, just reached out to me, she's going to either pay me or buy insulin for her daughter for next month. So I just <laughs> so these are the people that I'm so passionate about helping. So without the judgment. I hope you've noticed that in my group, I just want to welcome everyone and not judge anyone for the decisions they're making because we all have challenges. I've been judged far too often. And it's, you know, why are you not using our insulin? I mean, on Twitter, someone shouted at me, you should be using our insulin. Well, if I can get it, I would. <laughs> I can't get it. And there's only so much I can spend out of pocket because, um, you know, if I if I go to pharmacy, I would be able to buy our insulin, but it's for it's not just a one-off thing. 
I have to buy it regularly. And, yes. uh, and given the fact that I've, I've paid for my CGM for years because my CGM was not funded either. So I had to pay out of pocket uh, for my CGM for five years, close to five years wow. uh, without any <laughs> breaks from it. It's, you know, it's not so easy. So um yeah, if you're tough one out there, you need some advice, you need help, you need tips, you're confused, you're lost, and you don't like being judged. And, you know, uh, there's nothing embarrassing about, you know, not being able to afford meat or cheese. Yeah, you know, just just reach out to me. I'm here to help. Oh, I love that about you, that you're so willing to help. And you're right. I mean, you have to meet people where they're at. And if you look back at Dr. Richard Bernstein, when he was coming up with all of his methods, there wasn't such a thing as a CGM or these rapid acting insulins, or he was using the the pork insulin. I mean, it was just very crude. There was no way to really test his blood sugar yet. He was able to gain control through low carb, you know, extremely low carb. And, and that's how he did it. And he, that's what he's taught the world. So even if you have very limited access to all the latest technologies, you can still manage your blood sugar. It's, it's going to be harder for sure. And you're going to have to have a lot more control over what you put in your mouth but you can do it. And actually that brings me to another subject, which I know you're also very passionate about and also really helps you with managing your blood sugars, controlling the cost of your diabetes. And that's fasting. When did you find fasting? Right. I uh, came across fasting, I think pretty much the same time as I discovered uh, this sort of ketogenic diet for, for diabetics. I came across it through one of Jason Funk's <laughs> videos, the father of, uh, of fasting, I have to say. I mean, the first time I ever heard the word autophagy was through him, through one of his videos. So, um, so um, I think uh, I, I, yeah, I was already low carber. I'd been doing low carb for... Uh, I'm not saying keto, but just generally lower carb, probably about 40 to 50 grams uh, per day um, for two or three years before I I, um, I sort of thought, well, I should be able to do fasting too. <laughs> uh, and again, uh, after watching all of uh, Jason Fung's videos, and he's, he talks about fasting. In fact, he has a fasting group as well on, on Facebook, which I joined. Um, just to learn more about it. And I let it just sink in and I was just doing my research. I joined every fasting group, every diabetes group, every keto for diabetics group on, on social media. Um, I wanted to find actually type one diabetics who were doing fasting. So I started off in every group, I would try and put a post up, trying to reach out to people, are there any type ones out there who are doing fasting? And little did I know that it was a taboo word. I mean, type one, put type one and, and fasting together was taboo. I would be shunned. In fact, my post was, uh, was removed in one group. I, um, I was told I couldn't post. Uh, about type ones uh, fasting because that's uh, dangerous. So if I posted anything like that, I would be banned from the group. And of course, I just just voluntarily left then because there's just uh, the group doesn't serve me, obviously. But uh, but every group, including actually, I'm, I mean, uh, this this is these these groups are not managed by those doctors or professors, right? They're not managing. They're just their fans are managing their groups. 
And so even in Dr. Bernstein's group, oh, Dr. Bernstein does not support uh, fasting, right? Okay, well, that I was shush there too. And I thought there must be someone out there who's doing, um, you know, fasting and who's type one. I just wanted to exchange ideas because I wanted to do it for autophagy purposes, not for weight loss because I didn't have excess weight to lose. Um, insulin sensitivity I knew about that I knew that it would uh, 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 make your fasting makes your insulin sensitive because obviously for a full day or two or three your insulin levels are right down to their baseline level <clears throat> so towards the end of the fast uh, you know you become more insulin sensitive so I knew about all of that I just wanted to find someone else who'd already done it or he will who, who would be willing to try it with me perhaps on the same day hey that's my WhatsApp number. Let's do it together. Let's see how it goes. So let's support each other. I needed the support. And yet I couldn't find it anywhere on, on, on social media. And um, then I found, I actually found one group where type 1 diabetics, um, uh, one group for type 1 diabetics who were doing fasting. And I thought, fabulous. And I just joined the group. I thought, this, this is what I wanted. This is the group. These are the sorts of people I wanted. And all they were, po they were posting was, uh, or they seemed to be promoting orange juice fasting. I mean, there are hundreds of different ways of fasting, right? <laughs> uh, but in my mind, if you're doing, if you drink, if you're drinking orange juice during your fast, well, Orange juice is pure sugar, right? So if you're drinking orange juice, then you are going to need to take bolus insulin, uh, insulin for it. But the whole purpose so of this the was fasting, type ones that were doing this. Oh, I'm, wow, I'm shocked group. by that. It's out there. It's mm -hmm. out there. So, um, and you know, in my mind, it just didn't make sense because it defies its purpose. For me, fasting would. I mean, the primary goal of fasting, whether you want to uh, lose weight or whether you want to achieve autophagy, keep inflammation down, um, to have, uh, you know, to repair your old or damaged cells, whatever you want to achieve at the end of it, you need to bring those insulin levels down. So if you're doing orange juice fasting, so you're drinking orange juice, maybe two large glasses, in a day, you're going to need to take insulin for it. As type ones, we know that, right? You can't get away with a whole glass of insulin. That's pure sugar, like probably 40 grams of carbohydrates in there. So you're going to take insulin for it. So that kind of defies the purpose. And if you are going to take orange juice because you're having lows, hypos, it means that your insulin level is already too high. Your background insulin is too high. So it would make sense to cut your background insulin down. So either way, it just didn't make sense to me. So when I just tried to explain all of that and, and just question what the purpose would be, I mean, what does it achieve? I was told, oh, it's for electromaintained electrolytes. And of course, I just, uh, you know, I knew from my own research, that electrolytes, I mean, most people for, for actually, you know, three to four day fast, most people only ever need salt and that's exactly what was stated in actually uh dr funk's uh, uh uh book as well uh, uh, had his book by then and he just promotes salt he says unless you're doing a whole month or you know two week fast which needs to be done under you know medical supervision in most cases you're not going to to have serious electrolytes sort of imbalance problems all you need is salt just 
pure sea salt and that will uh, fix you, <laughs> put you right. So anyway, so that group didn't seem to serve me well either. So I decided, okay, I'm going to create a Facebook group. I'm going to do this fasting and post in the group how I'm getting on. Um, and and also write a blog about it on my website. I already had a website because I was a coach, like low carbohydrate coach uh, by then. Uh, I thought I'm just going to write a blog there as well, publish the blog and just have that group out there and see if anyone will join. And uh, soon enough, people started joining. <laughs> Initially, I thought if, even if one person joins the group, at least there would be someone out there I can share my results with. I can tell them that was the most awful mistake in my life or that was a, a liberating experience, you know. And, you know, um, people started joining actually. And not all of them are fasters, but at least they have interest. And they're letting, you know, people's posts sort of sink in. They're absorbing the ideas. They're gaining confidence. And um, and it's wonderful to actually see the members because I communicate with a lot of the members um, outside the group as well, like in private. And um, it's, it's wonderful. I'm really proud to have over 200, uh, maybe 300 members in the group who are all at least interested. They're either fast, they're experienced fasters, beginners, but they but but they they're very much interested in in fasting for various different reasons. Yeah, I love your Facebook group and you, you know, you you keep it very interesting with all the different topics you have and you also post your YouTube videos which are fascinating. So I definitely recommend that people find your group it's low carb and fasting, I believe is the name of the group. Lowcarbonfasting.com is the Facebook page. Now the Facebook group for fasters and type ones who are on keto and fast, uh, fast uh, who are doing keto, sorry, who are doing keto and fasting is called uh, um, keto and fasting with type one diabetes. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a great group. And uh, you know what's interesting about you is you know you. Most of my fasts are, I, I'm a daily eater. I do um, one meal a day usually. And I've always been really curious about the extended fasts. However, I'm at a point now where I've lost as much weight as I want to lose. And I feel like if I delve into the extended fast, I might go too low. <laughs> so I, I, I haven't really dabbled with that too much, but I am very curious to know a couple things. First, you're at a very good weight now. Do you do a lot of extended fasts? And if you do, do you end up at a point where you feel like you've lost too much weight. And then secondly, maybe you can tell us about some of these longer fasts because I've seen you do hundred hour fasts, And I think that's just really incredible as a type one. I'm, I almost can't imagine doing it. So maybe you can talk about those two things. Okay, so, uh, oh, the hundred hour fast uh, and the 90 hour fast um, were on the first fast that I did. So I started off small, obviously like you, I started with one meal a day. And that basically means you're fasting for 23. In fact, if your meal isn't lasting the whole hour, <laughs> so you're done with your meal within 30 minutes. So you're basically fasting the rest of the time. So you're fasting for a good 23 uh, and a half hours. That's that's a that's a, a significant sort of fast, right? Um, we shouldn't undermine that. So fasting doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, over days and days or weeks. Um uh, so I was already doing one meal a day. I'd, I was already confident about, you know, how to reduce my insulin. And one meal was working perfectly for me. Some, sometimes I think 
at the time I used to eat about 1 p.m. and that would be it. So one large meal. And so it, I was doing really well on that. So then I decided to uh, fast one day. So it kind of, I started building up on it. So uh, the first fast I think I did was about 36 hours or 38 hours. And then the next one at 38 hours, I was feeling so well that I just wanted to carry on a little bit more and eat the next morning instead or fast through the night. Uh, sometimes the hours, you know, wouldn't. So when I decide to break the fast, I look at the time. Well, it's 11 p.m. Do I really want to? When have I ever eaten at 11 p.m.? So I might as well fast another eight hours and wait until the morning. So um, I gradually built up on, on the fast, but I didn't write any blogs on those. I, I thought the 90-hour fast was uh, deserving of a blog. So uh, I challenged myself. I wanted to fast for 90 hours. I didn't know if I would be able to, but uh, I was taking notes, like detailed notes, and uh, I was starting typing up my blog as I as I go along, so I wouldn't forget anything. I was measuring my ketones and doing everything, and uh, you know, all I was doing is take salt, salt and water, and reducing my insulin, and uh, it went so well that the next extended fast that I did, or a long fast, was. Uh, uh, 100 hours, only because I thought, oh, I've already done the 90 hours. I know I can do it. I wonder if I can increase that by an hour, maybe even two or three. So, um, and I hit the 100 and I thought, okay, that's it. So I was salivating 100 hours. I was getting hungry. So I thought that, that's it. So 100 is an hour. I, I, I did, I never really planned to stop at a certain sort of hour of fasting. And then, because you have to listen into your body. If I'm struggling, if it's causing stress, if it's raising my cortisol levels, uh, which will then uh, increase my insulin needs, then, you know, what have I achieved? So it's not supposed to be punishment. It's supposed to be a, a good feeling. It's supposed to be a feeling of, it's supposed to give you that sense of freedom and lightness and uh, mental sort of sharpness. Um, you're supposed to feel energetic throughout the fast. You know, if if you're not feeling any of those, then then something isn't right. You're not ready for a long fast. So I knew with the second long fast, I wanted to break my record. I wanted to do more than 90 because 90 went really well. I didn't struggle with a 90 hour fast, but I didn't know how long I could go. However, 100 hours was, uh, I thought, okay, I'm stopping now. 100 hours, that's, you know, that's pretty good. So, <laughs> so I've written two blogs on fasting with type 1 diabetes. Um, I, I don't write blogs on the rest because they're just so sort of insignificant to me. 36 hours, 38 hours, it just comes and goes before you even know it. Yeah, so, so you've done two of those, you know, much longer fasts what's your normal fasting schedule like, or do you just change it up? You know, this Lent, um, <laughs> whether you're celebrating Easter or not, or whether, you know, every January people make a resolution, right? So I'm going to, you know, not, uh, I don't know, I'm going to start going to the gym or whatever. So um, I, I'm not a particularly religious person, but everyone was giving up something around me uh, for Lent. And traditionally, people give up animal uh, animal foods uh, Lent, right? So they want to eat, uh, eat meat. Um, and I thought, well, that's going to ruin 
my health. So I can't do that. And my diet is restrictive anyway. I mean, I do have a very sort of a discipline, I'm very disciplined when it comes to my diet. Um, I thought, okay, I'm going to do something else for 40, 40 days uh, prior to, to sort of Easter, Easter Sunday, which was yesterday. So, um, so I thought I'm not giving up any food item. Instead, I'm going to give up on eating. So I'm going to do like skip one full day every single week. So, um, and I did it. So that's like 42 hours, sometimes 40, 40, 42 to 48 hours. I was doing it weekly. And it's great. You asked about weight loss. Now, um, I don't lose weight. It's interesting, right? I mean, even with a 100 hour fast, I didn't lose weight. Um, what I did lose, though, is uh, abdominal fat. And that's I think that's fascinating. And and that's, in fact, you know, people are motivated to lose weight, right? When they get, go on the scale, they want to lose weight, they want to fit into uh, a particular favorite dress. Um, for me, my motivation, apart from the more sensible sort of <laughs> motivating factors of I want to become more insulin sensitive, whatever, my motivating factor is to see a flat tummy. I mean, I <laughs> even in my 20s, I never had a flat tummy. I would never wear a bikini because I wouldn't even, in fact, I was just so body conscious. I wouldn't stand in front of a mirror in my 20s and look at myself because I was skinny. I was a skinny vegetarian. We know muscle mass because I never out and um, and I had a round tummy as a vegetarian. Of course, what do you eat? You eat tons of chickpeas and and vegetables, which I could uh, couldn't. I had difficulty digest, but I believed that I was doing the right thing. So um, and I, I hated looking at myself. <laughs> so now that's one 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 thing I really love. I just love standing in front of the mirror, looking at my tummy, and I'm thinking, am I really fifty now? I mean, really. I can finally put on, you know, I can finally see my waistline. Um, you know, I, I you know, I didn't have a waistline, right? I mean, I wasn't fat. I never had excess weight, but I had, I was probably topy, thin on the outside and you know, fat on the inside. I probably had not probably I could visit I had visible fat in my abdominal area. So I had no waistline. I did not have a waistline. And I remember after my first child, I um I was having a conversation, intimate conversation with my mom. And I said, Ma, I just hate that. I kind of look squarish from like, if you look at me <laughs> on my two sides, I kind of look square. Um, you know, I, I can't wear dresses unless the dress itself has some kind of a, a waist kind of to it to, to give my body shape. I just don't seem to have a waistline. And she said something like, oh, well, well, I mean, you're, growing older right <laughs> I was in my 30s at the time so you uh, you're growing older. you you had a baby last year besides she said it you know it's genetic I mean look at me look at grandma we don't have slim waistlines either so so when I started low carbing and fasting that's something else that I noticed I could finally in my late 40s I started seeing a waistline I actually had a waistline but it was always covered with fat um, fat tissue and you know, I had no understanding of nutrition and diet and fitness and and I uh, you know I cherish I think that's one thing perhaps I should have done earlier in my life like study nutrition and become a nutrition researcher um, 
of course we can't go back and change uh, you know our life but uh, but if i had i think i would have benefited from the knowledge that i have now much earlier a dec- decade ago yeah for sure and i i love that story about you have a waistline i have a waistline too and i never i never really had one not at least after high school so um it's a nice it's nice to have that back and who knew that you could get it later in life because all you hear is you know, once you pass 40, it's just like, you're just going to get fat. And that's the end of it. Like, just don't expect anything else. There's nothing you can do about it. And actually that's not true. So I'm glad to hear that for you too. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, if you don't mind me just pivoting back for a second to your more extended fast, or even your 48 hour fast, 42 or 48 hour fast. When I do fasts that are longer in nature, when I end up with a low blood sugar or, uh, you know, I've had to eat a couple of glucose tabs and then, you know, maybe you end up on the roller coaster just because you haven't exactly matched up how many carbs you need for your low blood sugar. And then your insulin kicks and I'm on a, on the loop algorithm. So unless I dial back my insulin sensitivity properly, when I'm doing those longer fasts, sometimes I can actually end up on a roller coaster with low blood sugars, even if I'm in a, in a very fasted state. And I saw on your on your blog, when you were doing those longer fasts, there were times where you had kind of erratic blood sugars. How did you push through those? By believing that at the end, <laughs> it will end well. <laughs> believing in yourself. Look, if we have, I mean, as type ones, if we have to give up on our control every time we have roller coasters, um, well, we would have given up long ago. I would have given up long ago. I mean, even... People look at me now and think that I'm just flatlining every single day, all day long, and that that's sort of physiologically normal. Well, no, I'm not flatlining every single day, all day long. Um, My blood sugars elevate, but as I said, I'm proud that they elevate within a normal range. And most of the time, most, not all, most of the time I can explain um, why. I had that rise or why uh, I had that low. Now, um, you know, it's normal to have to have uncontrolled blood sugars, even when you're fasting. If you have erratic blood sugars and you can't explain, uh, I mean, it could be one of, you know, a hundred things. <laughs> just, just continue. Don't give up. Continue. Hydration is extremely important during a fast. I don't think I don't remember making, yes, I probably have made a a point of how important it is in my blogs, but uh, hydration is very, very important. And um, at the end of the day, even if, you know, even when you're fasting, you still have to take insulin and you have, you still need to make sure that that insulin isn't too high to cause blood sugar drops. And you have to make sure that it's not too low either, so you're not having blood sugar rises. Uh, but of course, insulin isn't the only thing that controls, you know, your blood sugars. I mean, cortisol levels, stress levels, lack of sleep, disrupted sleep, the CGM uh, beeping through the um, through the night, for example. So the next morning, you're going to have erratic blood sugars because you haven't had the restful sleep. All of these other things impact even the weather even the weather, something as simple as the weather, whether you're sweating, you're not sweating, it's sunny, it's cold. Um, so uh, it's it's okay. If you're having erratic blood sugars during your fast, it's perfectly normal. Just 
as it is normal to have erratic blood sugars <laughs> um, on any any other day when you, you know that you're eating not fasting so it's fine it's not the end of the world just continue doing whatever you're doing and believe that you know your next next experience will be a better one whether you're fasting or you know keto beginners uh beginners you know um they don't know how to adjust their insulin because they've now suddenly lowered their carbohydrate levels from i don't know 100 grams of carbs per day to to 50 grams um so does that necessarily mean they have to reduce their insulin straight away by 50% because carbs have been reduced from 100 grams to 50 grams well not necessarily not necessarily you won't know unless you're doing it and you're experimenting on yourself um I think, you know, there aren't any formulas that would work uh, when it comes to insulin adjustment or, uh, you know, insulin uh, dosing or fasting or whatever. No single formula would work for every type 1 diabetic in exactly the same way. In fact, I've noticed that my 90-hour fast, for example, my insulin needs were completely different to my insulin needs when I fasted for 100 hours. And you would think 100-hour fast was longer, so I would have required a lot less insulin to maintain, uh, you know, the longer you fast, obviously, less insulin you will need. But I ended up taking actually more insulin to maintain normal blood sugars for the 100-hour fast than for the 90-hour fast. Um, because our bodies are reactionary we we you know our bodies just um, are affected by our hormones by the monthly cycle by you know everything around us has an impact on our blood sugars um, and insulin requirements and so it's not just you know the food so yeah that that was interesting finding for me and I was going to write a blog I think it's long overdue now comparing the, my experience um, of the two fasts uh, but that was one thing I noticed. Whoa, 100 hour fast, 10 hours longer, and yet my insulin needs were a lot higher overall. Um, so if you're having erratic blood sugars, coming back to your question, Lucy, uh, don't worry about it. Just keep on fasting. It's fine. Next time you fast, you might actually have a you know, better result. And the third time you fast, uh, blood sugars might you know, have, a, have a mind of their own sometimes. <laughs> you might have erratic blood sugars. And that's okay that's okay yeah that's a really good point i guess i i ended up getting frustrated when that happened but i should just take that as a learning experience and just push forward and incorporate what i've learned into the next one i think that's what you're trying to say <laughs> exactly exactly because no two fasts are the same even my you know the shorter fast i call them for shorter fasts like 36 hours 48 hours no two fasts have ever gone exactly the same way with exactly the same um, insulin uh, uh, insulin uh, uh, reduction uh, protocol. No, each one of them has been different and I'm the same person and I was doing it over the past seven weeks, 48 hour or 46 to 48 hour fast every single week over a period of seven consecutive weeks. Same person. That's fascinating. Not, you know, years apart, same age, same person, seven weeks. Each each one of those fasts was different. So 
because there are external factors, factors that, you know, have an impact on blood sugar. So uh, you have to be, um, you have to be prepared to constantly sort of work through it and and adjust your insulin needs based on based on your blood sugars for that day for that time it's helpful if you write i mean my blogs help me and then actually it's funny to say this but uh, um my blogs motivate me too because I look back at them and I think wow I did the 90 hours or the 100 hours so yeah I'm feeling a little hungry now at 28 hours but hey it's only 28 I'm sure I can go longer sometimes I feel hungry at 26 hours and I go why because my body usually has a food every 23 hours right so for for that one hour it's used to being fed once a day because I have one one meal a day so anywhere between, you know, 23 to, I don't know, 26 hours, I get this nagging hunger. And and I have to look for motivation around me because no one else in my family does fasting the way I do. And so, um, so sometimes I go back to my blog or distract myself and hunger comes like a wave. It comes and goes. And so, you know, when you ignore it, it's, um, you know, it kind yeah, of goes away. It yeah, goes away. Busy. Yeah. yeah, you keep busy. It goes away. It doesn't come back. So Yeah. No, that's great. And I love and on the in the show notes, we'll have all of the links to where that people can find you. But your blogs are super informational and you have all of your charts of your blood sugars and your insulin usage and all that stuff during these extended fasts and other fasts too. And it's just it's extremely informative if you're type one and you're trying to do something like that. So that I'm so glad you you put that up there. And I hope at some point you do that comparison that you were talking about, because I think that would be very helpful. And actually speaking of two, two different fasts, not going the same way. One of the factors I notice for myself is hormones and I'm 42, you're 50. I am, you know, in the early stages of perimenopause, I would say. And, you know, my cycle is typically 22 days long and I, I can pretty much predict within that cycle, what my blood sugar is going to be, what my insulin needs are going to be. Once you add in perimenopause or something like that. And for example, a few months ago, I went uh, 36 days instead of the normal 22 days. And every single day after the 22 day mark, my insulin needs just went through the roof. And it's, uh, it really throws a wrench in things. I don't know if you've had, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I don't know if you can share some of your experiences because there's not too much talk in general about women going through menopause. And there's almost no discussion about women with type one going through perimenopause or menopause. So maybe if, if you wouldn't mind just going through that a little bit, your experiences thus far. Um, okay. So Lucy, I'm approaching 50, so I'm 50 in a couple of months. And I believe I hit the perimenopausal sort of stage about six months ago because up up to that point, my monthly cycle was like a clock, like a clock every twenty eight every twenty eight days, twenty eight to thirty, but it was within the twenty eight to thirty days, so worked like a clock, and I. Uh, started having three weekly cycles and I go okay what's this I'm gonna have to search that up what's happening and and then I found that it's actually perimenopause or of course it's ex to be expected I mean I'm close to 50 now so um, I'm learning as I go along 
But I do remember, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Ian Lake. He's a uh, he's a he's a he's a type one diabetic um, general general uh, medicine practitioner from from the UK, and he's a pioneer type one faster and and uh, you know keto. He's a he's a proponent of the keto diet, um, and uh, I was interviewing him, and he said. Um, we were talking about different factors that impact blood sugar levels, uh, from weather to exercise to you know all the stress, sleep, etc. And he said, uh, now if you're a perimenopausal woman, add to that all the hormonal uh, sort of impacts. Uh, may God help you. <laughs> that's exactly what he said. And I thought, oh wow, well, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, that's something I'm not looking forward to. And now this was probably a year ago when I was into sort of interviewing him. And he said that, but it stuck in my head. He said, Oof, uh, you know, you've got quite a challenge in your hands if you're a perimenopausal uh, you know, woman. So um yeah, you know, uh, on my pump, on my omnipop pump, I can uh, actually have set different um basal um uh settings for basal insulin so um uh, whether i'm having if if i decide to have two meals in a day instead of one and sometimes i do alternate uh, you know i want to be social and you know i want to fit in with the family sort of dinners etc so i don't always want to be the odd one out no i just want to have one meal and i'm done sometimes you know i, I have two meals and there's nothing wrong with that but but i have two different basal rates to accommodate and i do a lot of uh traveling as well so I have different basal rates for different countries because the weather, the sunrise and everything has an impact. Even the time of day that I wake up and start my day has an impact on my blood sugar. So I have different basal settings with different countries too. Um, and I, of course, have had, I always had two separate basal uh, settings for when I'm, uh, you know, ovulating, because that's the time that I, my insulin requirements um, tend to go up. And uh, over the past few few months, when I'm having, you know, erratic sort of monthly cycles, I thought, well, that basal so, so that, that setting doesn't doesn't work because that's supposed to you know give me more insulin at day 15 or day 14 which is when I start ovulating on a normal cycle and uh, you know for about three days I seem to require more insulin and then I'm fine so I had a special specific basal rate drawn up or you know written up or set on my, my pump for that and now that's no, no longer valid. And I just sat down and I nearly cried because now I'm having three weekly uh, sort of cycles. How am I going to, that doesn't, when do I actually switch to higher, um, you know, higher um, uh, basal sort of setting? So I've still got to work on that, but I'm prepared. That's yet another challenge. You have to live with it. It's here. It's not going to go away just as type one diabetes will not go away so that's just going to add to the challenge i'm going to have to learn how to adjust my basal rates um but i think thinking about it it's probably because it tends to be erratic as you said i mean you don't know whether you're going to have you know um uh, 36 sort of 
day, day cycles or even 2021 as it was in my case last uh, last month. So uh, because you don't know what to expect, it can be erratic. I can't have a specific basal setting where I can just switch to that setting and it will cater for me. I think I just have to be prepared. Uh, when I notice insulin, certain needs going up, um, and of course, it does make you insulin resistant temporarily. Even when you eat foods, you seem to require more insulin to cover those the same foods. Uh, but it will probably be for three or four days. So I just have to be vigilant and monitor myself closely and probably use the temp temporary basal rate increase on my pump. So I'll just have to increase my, my basal rate by 20%, 30% and see how it goes and make notes. I make notes on everything. I just write down notes. So I learn from them because I won't remember. <laughs> I won't remember if I don't write down notes. So, mm, Well, that's good. So thank you for, learning. yeah. Thank you for entertaining that question. Actually, as I'm hearing you talk about it and I'm just putting together pieces in my own head about the insulin resistance that you experience, if you're not on your you know normal cycle, I was almost thinking maybe when that happens to me again, I'll take that opportunity to do an extended fast because if you're already insulin resistant, why not just add some extra fasting in there and take food out of the equation entirely and see how you do. Because it's so hard to manage your insulin levels during those times. It's, it's like almost impossible. At least I found. Yeah. Well, it might be a good idea. See how you go, uh, you go because uh, you you know those uh, sort of three or four days when you're um, temporarily insulin resistant. A lot of women experience um, sort of ravenous hunger. They just you know they crave. We know about it, right? They crave dark chocolate or they crave chocolate and you know uh, uh, creamy drinks and and so. Um, uh, it, it makes sense physiologically because, uh, of course, if you're craving all these sort of good foods, heavy fats, etc., then uh, because your body's getting prepared for, you know, for possible sort of conception, right? <laughs> but if you're perimenopause, and it's not advised, by the way, um, it's not advised for women uh during the, their ovulation to do to do extended fast. Extended fast is ideal uh for uh for 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 someone who's you know considering at least you know uh, uh conceiving and having uh, having a baby uh, extended fast is more ideal for them just after or towards the end of their period and following their period not as they're ovulating because you need the nutrients in your body you need to prepare your body you need all those good fats in your body um so, so it's in an optimal state Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. That's good information. Mm. Very but good for information. Us, for us, as long as, you know, we're not going to have a baby and we, we know we're perimenopausal. So uh, uh, if, if you're not having those insatiable sort of cravings, then it's something you might want to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll think through that a little bit more and I'm going to, you know, as this podcast continues and as I keep experimenting with my own body, <laughs> I'll update everybody, but it's something that I'm endlessly fascinated by. And if to the extent that you notice any of that stuff, if you could, you know, whenever you're adding to your blogs, think about me <laughs> and add those in there if you want. Um, I wanted to ask you just, you know, one kind of question to close, which is, you know, we've talked quite a bit, we've skirted around this issue, but haven't come at it directly. Obviously when you 
you've had diabetes for 45 years. And during that time, you've had varying levels of control. I know in the beginning, just like with me in the beginning, control was not good. And especially when everybody introduced these, you know, these rapid acting insulins and everybody was eating pizza and pasta and everything they wanted, blood blood sugar control got even worse. Maybe you can just talk us through just a general timeline of, you know, where your blood sugar control started to where it is now, because now I know it's, it's fantastic. So just so people can get an, a sense from you, your, your blood sugar journey and why this lifestyle is so important to you. Well, I'm going to start with a small correction, Lucy, if you don't mind. It's not fantastic now. I'm still work in progress. I'm learning as I go along. I, you see, when you think of yourself, oh, I'm fantastic now. I've reached a place where I can't do anything else anymore. Um, then I think, uh, you know, you might fall victim because one day your body will change, hormones will change, you go, oh, what's happening now? So uh, I'm work in progress. I That's how I look at myself. I'm by no means, uh, you know, at an optimal place. I'm working on myself. Um so, well, yeah, I don't want anyone to look at me and think, she's my role model. I want to be like her. Okay, so um, when I was a child, obviously, with uh, controlled carbohydrates, um, my mom was in charge of my diet, obviously. So she was the one who cooked. And uh, um, throughout my childhood, my A1C would be somewhere around, you know, seven, which is actually what is recommended nowadays by uh, the American uh, Diabetes Association and their equivalent sort of organization in the UK. So they look at seven and they go, that's that's optimal, that's good. I mean, no, it's not optimal, that's number one. And type ones can do better. Um, but it was around seven with uh, no restriction, but it was def- definitely uh, uh, with no sort of elimination, I have to say, but, but you know, certainly restriction. Uh, my mom didn't bring in desserts at home. I remember uh, cakes from birthday to birthday. I remember I remember every every birthday cake my mom made for me because that was probably the only time I ever saw desserts in you know in our household and I lived with my extended family and everyone must have uh, must have must must have been doing low carb with me so it's fascinated me you know and they say you know if your family is supporting you then if your family if your child is type one and the whole family is in it together then the child won't feel like, um, you know, they have to eat differently, that they're different or they're being deprived. Everyone is sitting and stuffing themselves with ice cream and they're they're not allowed to do that. So uh, I don't remember seeing desserts and cakes or anything in, you know, my my, my grandma's because my father died when I was uh, I was two. And so my mom moved in with her parents so she could work full time. So um, yeah, I don't remember anyone having cakes. <laughs> That's why I remember every birthday cake. I remember the strawberry cake, cake for example, with uh, you know cream. I remember um, every single birthday cake. So, um, so my my A one C would be about you know seven. Then I came to the UK as a as a as a as a young student to study and that's when the rapid insulin uh, was uh, becoming um, famous or infamous so uh, um, then I was told you know it's just whatever you want 
it's interesting because they wouldn't necessarily tell me to eat junk food. They wouldn't tell me to wake up in the morning and have a donut, for example. But, you know, but that flexibility, hey, you don't have to limit yourself. You fancy Coke, just have a Coke and it's fine. You just take your insulin. You don't have to live differently just because you're type one. So I remember my, my, my A1C actually hit 12.8%. That's a dangerously high A1C. And for uh, those of you using millimoles over a liter, that's 116 millimoles over a liter. So that's a very high A1C level. Um, at that point, I think, uh, you know, at the diabetes clinic, they told me this was pre-CGMs and I wouldn't, I don't remember regularly checking my blood sugars. Um, they gave me um, um, um insulin to to carb ratio so uh they taught me how to ca count carbohydrates so if you're eating that many carbohydrates this is how much insulin you need and that's what i would do but you know but i wouldn't check my blood sugars regularly um so 12.8 was uh dangerously high uh, uh hemoglobin a1c and they told me at the diabetes clinic look um we're gonna give you a pump insulin pump and uh, my first pump was Medtronic pump and it's going to change your life. It's going to bring your blood sugars back to normal. It's going to help you control better, etc. And of course, I, I lo um, love my pump, love my first Medtronic pump. Uh, it didn't bring my A1C <laughs> uh, It was just uh, another means by which I could deliver. I was taking my insulin. So instead of the the, the, the insulin pens, you know, inject, inject, injector pens, I was just using a pump because um, my diet hadn't changed. So I wasn't controlling the carbs. Um, so a pump didn't really do anything. So that was the highest day once I remember. Um, um, now I'm at 5.8. There's room for improvement. 5.8 is very, in fact, 5.7, sorry, 5.7% is falls under non-diabetic range, but it's certainly not optimal. I'm working on myself now, working on improving those figure, uh, the A1C, reducing it even more because the lower it is, in fact, lower than 5.5, um, uh, your risk of complications, diabetes-related complications will dramatically reduce. And so that's where I want to be. In fact, I want to be lower than 5.5. And then when I get there, my next um, goal would then be, can I lower this to 5%? Um, you know, it's magic doesn't happen in, in, you know, in one go. So, you know, you, no one ever learns how to fly a plane in just one lesson, right? It's, it's working. It's a gradual work and I'm working on it. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're going to get there because you're constantly working toward it. And as am I, and it, it is, it is hard. My last day once he came back at 5.7 as well. So it had been lower, you know, it's just certain certain periods of time or you have better blood sugars and that's all there is to it, you know, mm -hmm. and you can't really beat yourself up about it, but you can always strive to do better, which is what it sounds like we're both trying to do. And uh, yeah, this has been really a fascinating discussion and we didn't even get to half the topics I wanted to talk to you about. So we'll have to have you back. Um, in the meantime, all of your, the places people can find you will be linked. You have a great website, great YouTube channel. You have, are you on, you're on Twitter as well. Is that right? 
I'm on Twitter here under okay. NTS Translation. That's my my personal Twitter profile. Okay, fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And it's just been a real pleasure speaking to somebody else who is on the same page and really trying to get the message out. So thanks for all the good work you're doing. Lucy, thank you so much. It was an honor. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, please email me at fastlifewithdiabetes at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.